Hi, hello, welcome. Look, before we get to the podcast with Celtics blogs, Adam Taylor, there's been a trade. Chris Dunn and the Celtics legend, Carson Edwards, are on their way to Memphis in exchange for Juancho, Hernan Gomez, and a second-round pick swap. Joe is on the call to break it all down. Joe, how you doing, sir? Good. I'm back out of uh, back out of semi-retirement. We love it. Love probably to see teetering it. On, probably <laughs> teetering on returning back to semi-retirement, but it's a Saturday morning, and we're locked down. I've got nothing else to do. So Fair here enough. we are. Oh, very, very glad to have you. As far as Hernan Gomai go, which I'm <laughs> declaring the plural for Hernan Gomez's, uh, did we get the best one? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the trade overall, Joe? Mate, there's one show in the Herman Gomez town. <laughs> there we go. Pun number one. Ding! <laughs> in your pun put counter. A, put a sound in effect. <laughs> yeah, no, um, like, I know nothing about him. All I know is that he was good enough at one point to get a $7 million a year multi-year contract. Mm-hmm. So um, all it means is it's just a better part. Like, maybe he works out. It costs us nothing. Uh, uh, although I was kind of hoping, like, before we signed Schroeder, I was kind of, like, a little bit like, oh, I wonder how Chris Dunn will go. But mm. realistically, Carson, he's done. And, um, I mean, he'll get one more shot, and then it'll be it for him uh, in the NBA. And then, um, yeah, so we gave up a second-round pick swap, really, for it. Um, and I think it gives us better change. It just frees up a roster spot. And yep. there's, like... Like he's a proper NBA player, right? So there's he's there's a reasonable chance the guy's going to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty happy about it, man. Like it just I'm you know I'm sort of doing trade machine having trade machine thoughts in my head, and I think it's better to have a one piece that earns seven million bucks than say three pieces that combine in seven million bucks because roster spots are still at a premium. It's you can't make mid season trades right with like three for one mid season trades are so hard to do, hmm, and sure. it just makes having exact change way more likely. I think having a piece like this, and he's a probable probably going to get minutes and contribute positively. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the the exact change uh, concept there, Joe. It's something that you, you bring up uh, pretty regularly on the podcast and have to have that kind of exact change in the form of a seven-ish million dollar expiring contract. Of course, he's, he's not guaranteed next year. And the fact that it fills a hole kind of for the Celtics, like we needed some some shooting at the four spot. It's not uh, you know the same level as Carl Anderson or, or Larry Nance Jr., but it, it is that archetype and it's something that we need I guess in the sort of the Shemi Ojale slot who can receive those kickout passes and hopefully knock down a couple of threes while grabbing a few boards and playing a look at defense as well. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. we'll see. Um, there's a comment in the thread from a, from a Wolves fan, the notorious JN, who said, don't have any expectations for him, just to set that bar low right off the bat. He's streaky from three, but if he has a healthy offseason, he might be decent as a spot up four. At a worst, you've cleared a roster spot and you get $7 million off the salary uh, next season. So... Not bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else really there is to say on the matter. It's kind of all the details are still emerging. Um, do you think you'll get much of a, uh, a spot on the roster or part of the rotation this coming season? Yeah, heck yeah. Um, you know, I think most of the most of the the um, the, the the amateur analysts that I respect the most seem to want. Hey, we need a big a bigger wing who can shoot um, and defend upper position. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a lot of guys that can defend down. You know, um, so yeah, yeah. There's definitely an opportunity. Of course, if he doesn't make shots, he won't play. Like yeah. <laughs> that's just how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he'll he'll get a shot. Well, he's a career thirty-five. Reckon? Yeah, he's a career thirty-five percent three-point shooter. So what is about league average, maybe slightly above. Um, like I said, he will hopefully slot into that Shemi Ojale uh, slot, although significantly less buff 
Um, he did have a great 14-game stint <laughs> two seasons ago for the T-Wolves at the, the power forward spot. Played 29 minutes per game, averaged 13.7 boards on 56% effective field goal percentage and 42% from three. So a very small sample size, sort of like your Neesmith college-level sample size there. But um, mm. something to be hopeful for. He's also a co- career wearer of the number 41, which is not a retired number for the Celtics, one of uh, very few... Joe, can you name three Celtics who have won worn number forty one in in history? I don't think I can name one. Uh, one no, is a Canadian. Oh, Kelly, Kelly, Lennon. Okay, far out. Um, yeah, Press I don't know. Forty four gets a few. Gets a few that come through. Um, nah, man, you're gonna have to tell me. Well, Take me I've down got memory lane, here. bro. So I'll go in order of I guess name recognition. So Kelly Olynyk was one. We had uh, James Posey in 2008, of course, oh, wearing number 41 yeah, yeah. and then the long okay. pull-up socks there. Jarvis Venando, Venado, uh, who played in 2013 I, I, and I've never heard of. Never heard of the man, yeah. Stacey Sorry, King. Jarvis. Uh, Stacey King played for us? Yeah, in for real? 19, 1997. How about that? Yeah. Oh, uh, Stacey King from the Bulls, Stacey I King. I guess so. I don't know if the time... Lines up there, I guess it does. Nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah, we've got Bruno yeah, Sunday be, in two thousand three. Like his last, his last stop, I guess. You know, I guess so. Um, yeah. Bruno yeah. Sunday, okay. Michael Oluwakandi. I uh, said James oh, Posey. I remember him. Curtis Rowe, Tony Massenberg, Marcus Webb. That's the list. Tony Massenberg. Okay, yeah, I sort of remember. You know, remember that name from. Um, <laughs> <laughs> remember that name from like the late nineties, right? Um, didn't okay. have a Massenberg poster up on your wall few, growing up. Nah, no, nah, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> few luminaries there, mate. Few luminaries. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Hopefully, you can add a little bit more uh, pride to the number forty-one there in a Celtics jersey. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, um, I'm just going to do some quick maths because it's sort of been brought up that he um, sh- he's a thirty-five percent shooter. But I thought if we throw out last season, mm-hmm. I wonder what he gets. And I'm just going to do some quick excelling here, if you don't mind. Do you want to fill the air for a second, Ben? I will. Um, so there are. are a I just got to go other... text to columns. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, while you're cooking up some magic in the Excel kitchen, there, Joe. Uh, per ESPN's Bobby Marks. Chris Dunn is on an expiring $5 million contract, and Carson Edwards has a $1.9 million team option for next season. The $7.4 million contract for Hernan Gomez next season is non-guaranteed. A two-for-one trade will require Memphis to waive or trade a player uh, before the 15th of September. And then again, uh, per Woj, following up from his initial reporting of the trade, the deal can't be formally completed until September 15, when Chris Dunn and Carson Edwards' contracts are allowed to be aggregated in the trade. But, you know, it's basically done, done and dusted. Um, did I fill well, enough bad time for that, you there, Joe? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just wondering why that is. Why, why do they have to wait? Why, especially Carson Edwards. What's the issue there? Just some sort of CBA rules-based trickery, which we will be covering next week in the CBA for Idiots podcast that we're doing with uh, good old Wade Spoonie there. So um, I guess oh, stay tuned spoons. for that. Spoons. He'll see us, right? <laughs> now I've just 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 crunched the numbers over here, and uh, no, that guy's a thirty-five percent three <laughs> three-point shooter, no doubt about it. <laughs> no matter how you <laughs> he spin is, it. man. No matter how you spin it, eh? Yeah, yeah. No, he he really is. <laughs> We tried one, Joe. Oh, look. <laughs> we tried to make you look good. <laughs> we tried. We tried. Yeah. Um, um, no, no. He's Oh, that's all right, though. You know, you'll... Um, end of the day, um, you know, 35% is enough, you know? It's enough that you have to get guarded. So, yeah. That, that, that'll do. 
Yeah. So just, I guess, a salute or a tip of the hat to the, the outgoing personnel there. So a Reddit comment from Nibanu8 said, Brad Stevens first off-season as Pobo, president of basketball operations. Carson and Tremont both gone. Love this move. Wancho isn't great by any means, but he's better than Edwards for sure. Uh, Joe, as we say a heartfelt goodbye to Carson Edwards and Chris Dunn, do you, do you want to give us your thoughts on the, the Carson Edwards experience now that it's concluded? I'm sorry it didn't work out. It was one of my favorite summer league teams of all time, that yeah. um, <laughs> that 2019 draft. It was a hell of a lot of fun, and it was you know it was a soothing balm for us after the disaster <laughs> that had proceeded for it. But, yeah, poor old Carson, he's just not really an NBA player. That's just what it comes down to. He doesn't have an NBA role, and uh, fare thee well, mate. Mm. Yeah, maybe he'll make an appearance in the NBL. Who knows? Maybe for the New Zealand Breakers yeah, or the Sydney Kings. It. Like he's like you know how they talk about um like quadruple A players yeah. in baseball yeah. you know like Carson Edwards will just he would absolutely destroy at any level below the NBA probably maybe not like top flight Europe maybe he'd just be good but you know like yeah he'd carve up in the NBL. All right, Joe. Ooh. Thanks for coming on briefly. We're now going to switch to the full podcast with the Celtics blogs Adam Taylor. Welcome to the Celtics Reddit Podcast. Ben Ballas here. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're doing well. We've, of course, got Wayne Spoonie on the pod, but today we're very excited to welcome a special guest, Adam Taylor of Celtics Blog and the Celtics Blog Podcast of the same name. Adam, how you doing, sir? Thanks for coming on. Oh, pleasure's all mine, man. You guys do such a great job with this podcast, and I love the, the Reddit. So, um, I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thanks, man. We're very happy to have you and appreciate the kind words. Now, um, we're going to get to some takes from the people of Celtics Reddit a little bit later and get Adam's reaction to said takes, but we'll start with something a little bit more pressing, and that is Jason Tatum. Adam, there's been a lot of change this offseason. I think anyone who even vaguely follows the team is aware of that, and it's probably fair to say that all of that hinges on just a few things, perhaps most importantly, the progression and development of Jason Tatum. Is it fair to say that none of the changes we've seen this offseason so far matter if Jason Tatum isn't who we think he is, i.e. a genuine superstar? I think that these changes have been made to... like. So the way I look at it is you need that internal development from Tatum. You need him to be able to read and react to double teams better, to be able to orchestrate plays out of pick-and-roll scenarios better. You need him to be able to understand secondary and tertiary reads rather than just he's very comfortable spotting an open route one guy but when that passing lane is shut down by the defense that's where he becomes a bit more delayed in his ability to process what's going on around him and make that secondary or tertiary pass so to me that development there is the key development now if he hasn't got that yet if he's still working towards that because it's he's still in his infancy of developing as a playmaker then the other Guys like the Dennis Schroeder acquisition, the Josh Richardson acquisition. I think that goes some way to bridging the gap while that development continues to take place. So I wouldn't put the successes and failures of the season solely on Tatum's shoulders in terms of development. But I think if we do want to class him as a superstar, that that passing ability and that um, 
reading of the game definitely needs to take another step forwards or two step forwards before he's a genuine superstar, in my opinion. Adam, if you don't think he can make that step to genuine superstar, do you think that the moves we made uh, are even more important to get that flexibility so perhaps we can add sort of that third, maybe a little bit better than Drew Holiday type piece? Or is it just over, forget about it, if he doesn't take that next step, it doesn't matter, unless you add Giannis, uh, there's uh, (laughs) no real road to a championship. Yeah, I mean, for um, in just for clarity, I genuinely believe that the next step towards superstardom is six to eighteen months away for him because it's just it's only been mm-hmm. one year where he's really been asked to orchestrate the offense as a playmaker as well as a scorer, and expecting that to happen after one year is a tall task for anybody. So I do think that next step is wide open, completely available, and logically, it seems to make the most sense that he will make that step. But in the interim, I do think that adding guys that can handle the ruck a little bit, that can um, get their own shot and create for others, I think that does help kind of alleviate the stress. But I'm definitely not viewing this year as a championship contention season. I think that um, there's just too many other teams around the league that are deep. Um, Brooklyn obviously being the biggest issue in the East and Milwaukee. Um, So I'd like this to be viewed as another year of development for Jalen and Jason. And then next year is when we should really expect those guys to be knocking on the door of that superstardom tag. For Tatum, though, and whether it happens this year or the next year or or three, what are the, like, so forget the eye test for a second, what are the metrics for that leap? Like, what stats should fans be tracking to sort of see if, if Tatum is trending up in those stats to sort of get an idea that he's, he's, if not hitting that superstar mark, at least heading in the right direction. So for me, I'd be looking at assist to usage ratio, um, which cleaning the glass tracks quite nicely for you. It's very succinct. It removes garbage time, which you wouldn't expect Tatum to partake in. Um, that will show you how often he's orchestrating offense versus how often he has the ball in his hand. I'd like to see... Um, his foul drawing um, statistics increase as well, because obviously the best players in the league can get to the line at will and get those easy buckets to get themselves going. Uh, defensively, it's really hard to track a player's development uh, statistically on defense because it's such a team-orientated effort. I tend to lean mostly on the hustle stats, so deflections, contested shots. Tatum has shown that he's a very good off-ball defender when he's locked in, especially in the passing lanes. He gets his hands on a lot of balls. Um, from there, you can look at things like um, his, his estimated plus minus. I think um, dunksandfreeze.com track that very well. They do a great job there. And then just start to look at how efficient he's becoming as a scorer, how efficient he is as a passer, what's his assist turnover ratio, what's his link-up play with some of the other guys on the team. Um, I'm a big fan of um, the, assist, the, the assist network visualizations. I think they're on pbpstats.com. You've got an assist network. And it shows you what player is distributing to who. So what you'd hope to see is at the moment, that's quite limited for Tatum. It's mainly aimed at Jalen Brown or or last season, Kemba Walker. You'd like to see that kind of expand to multiple guys across both units. And you can see that he's becoming more ingrained in creating offense for others rather than just being a play finisher. He'll step into a play creator role. Um, That would be the way I would track his evolution for what we're actually asking him to improve on in the next year or so. 
Yeah, Adam, what type of, uh, so you say you want to see him expand who he's passing to. And I, I would contend that he also just needs to be a more willing passer. I think he gets tunnel vision a lot yeah. of times. But what are the type of plays and sets that the Celtics could run? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, and this is kind of a uh, in the weeds <laughs> question, but to get him to pass to guys that aren't just Jalen Brown or aren't what will probably be Marcus Smart instead of Kemba Walker this year. You just think with increased spacing and more threats on the floor, it'll be easier to find like Rob as the role man, or do, are there specific things you want to see Ime run uh, to help facilitate him passing to other guys, frankly? So just to touch on that tunnel vision, and then I'll go into some ideas that I've got. Um, that tunnel vision to me really pinpoints the fact that he is a great, option when his first read is open so if we look at it like if if jason's got the ball on the wing and he's looking for rob williams as the role man to hit that pass but a defense takes away rob williams as a passing option that's when tatum gets tunnel vision because he hasn't developed the skill yet to recognize secondary and tertiary passing options and so when i'm talking about that that is probably the best way to describe what i call the secondary options um in terms of play sets, I like Tatum operating down on the post quite a bit. I think that he, he's quite comfortable there. He's got the threat of the fade away from there. So if you can run some wedge screens into post actions and then ask him to create out of the post, maybe you run a wedge screen to get Tatum into the post and a Chicago action to get someone like Neesmith lifting off the corner and then ask Tatum to be kind of like the offensive fulcrum. He gets the ball in the post as the Chicago action happens and then Tatum kicks out because Tatum's got that mid-range gravity where defenses are going to have to make that hard choice, especially when someone like Neesmith is coming off a pin down on a Chicago action. You could switch that up on Miami, which is um, another action that happens on the wings. If you want Tatum to be more of a facilitator, obviously pick and rolls, double drag screens are all going to be great. I wouldn't mind um, seeing some more some flex opportunities for him, getting people to run flex screens for him, asking him to come cut baseline and then redistribute the ball on wraparounds. There's so many options that you can develop for him that will give him route one passing lanes where the, the first option should be available. But again, we, when that option is taken away throughout the season, that's where we're going to see how much development he's made there. It also, obviously, with the Tatum scoring um, the bag that he's got, if you run these plays and a shooting opportunities there, then you're just giving Tatum more and more chances to get his buckets and get he, start feeling the game his way. And the more he scores and the more consistently he finds the bucket, the more the defense is going to hone in on him and it, those passing opportunities are going to continue to open up. Yeah, I've got two follow-up questions there. So like you mentioned uh, like the, the Chicago set and, and the Miami set as well. Is there anything that you know about Ime Adoka where he might be more prone to, to running certain sets like that, where whereas Brad uh, wouldn't have been as prone to, to run that kind of offense. And, and subsequently, the follow-up question is, where can fans like myself, and I'm sure others listening, go to, to learn more about those play styles and those play calls? Because I don't think that's necessarily something that like sticks with sort of like your tier one or tier two basketball fan to, to know that sort of level of, uh, of offensive play knowledge. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, I'm I, these plays. I, I made sure to say ones that were very easily findable, um, very easily searchable. Simply because they're two of the most common sets ran in the NBA. Um, so, in terms of Imeudoka's playbook, I actually haven't got much idea of what we're going to expect. It's an anomaly to me. Now, there is another guy on Celtics blog, Adam Spinella, um, and he's a head, he's a head coach of a team himself. 
and he's been diving into some of the teams that Ime has been working with, and he's kind of doing a a proposed playbook of what to expect from Udoka. That should be out in a week or so on Celtics blog. I highly recommend that um, people check that, that out. That sounds awesome. Great. Um, for me, when I'm doing any film work, if I'm looking to learn about things, what I tend to do is I use Half Court Hoops, which is a paid newsletter of $5 a month. Um, one, that's um, Gibson Piper, if you guys don't follow him, one of the best X's and O's minds in the planet. The Basketball Playbook on Medium is a free resource that um, details all of these plays from something as simple as a 45 cut, which is just a cut from the wing at a 45 degree angle towards the hoop, all the way through to I don't know, your, your flywheel offense or your, um, your, your 21 sets, whether that be 21 chase, 21 rip through, whatever you want to be. That's a great, um, that's bas- the basketball playbook on medium and I highly recommend that great resource. And the final right. one is learn-basketball.com, which is a, a paid resource, but it walks you through from the very beginning of how to understand basketball all the way through to some of these advanced sets that we're talking about now. And it takes you step by step. Great. Well, um, people listening, I hope you're taking notes. This uh, Adam is a, a wealth of information here. I know I'm I'm going to re-listen to this one already and, and write Same. down some of these websites <laughs> that you're recommending uh, and prepare ourselves for the upcoming season so we actually sound like we know what we're talking about. Spoons, you got yourself covered there, but I got some work to do. Um, sticking with Tatum here, there's a lot of talk about you know the playmaking. I guess being the obvious extension of his game. Is is there another route for for Tatum at all? Is it possible just like a jump in his scoring efficiency gets him to that sort of superstardom level? Of course, yeah. I think that um, there's some guys that can be a superstar based off solely off scoring. I mean, Kobe Bryant was never really a playmaker, and he was one of the most loved players in NBA history. I know it's a Celtics podcast, but I think we can all accept the fact that he's a well liked name within NBA circles for very of it. Not Celtic circles, but NBA circles as a whole. I can see Mike shaking his head. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, being able to get to the line more, we saw that towards the end of the year. Um, it's no shock that as Tatum gets to the line more, he, he becomes more efficient with his um, shot selection. He becomes more efficient with how often he's actually hitting his shots because it gets you in that rhythm, right? Um, I was watching a video the other day where Jan Madar was working with Drew Hanlon and Drew Hanlon was talking about finding your shooting pocket. And mm-hmm. that made me think like, hey, when you're at the free throw line, you naturally go into that shooting pocket. So the more you do that in a game, the more your muscle memory remembers, hey, this is where my shooting pocket is. When I'm pulling up off the dribble, the ball's going to be here every time. And my mechanics and my rhythm are all going to flow. And I think that's a, a knock on effect of actually getting to the line during games, teaching your body, this is where I need to pick the ball up. And my mechanics are going to, I can work from my mechanics at a much quicker rate. Um, I haven't done the numbers yet, but I'd like to see how that tracks with Tatum's scoring efficiency on games where he gets to the line above five times versus when he's not at the line five times, uh, which would be 10 attempts, obviously. Uh, I think that probably has a coincidental knock-on effect that people don't look into. Um, and then obviously just shot selection. I think shots, um, quality of shot selection is huge, especially for Tatum that has such a deep range and such an array of hotspots across the floor. Having him settle is the worst thing in the world because he's so deadly from so many different spots on the floor. You want him to be more confident putting the ball on the floor and getting to those spots. Uh, finally, I know I'm rambling on here. Um, his handling transition is quite weak, in my opinion. I think his handling um, 
in isolation situations, in half-court situations, is more than acceptable. But if you watch him run the break, if he's got the ball in his hands, the dribble's quite loose, it leads to turnovers, it leads to really messy gather steps, and he can really, that's where I feel he's knocked off of his rhythm quite a lot. So if he can learn to either not run with the ball in his hands at speed and just be an outlet option, a play finisher option, or develop stronger handles at all run at his own speed. That's going to open up a lot more as a playmaker and as a scorer in transition opportunities. And just to kind of piggyback on that, and first, that's a awesome point by Drew Hanlon. I guess there's a reason he's a trainer for tons <laughs> of the best players in the NBA. <laughs> yeah. huh? uh, do you think, I mean, this kind of, you know, two versions of Tatum's superstardom, right? The passing version, which I'm obsessed with. That's I focus on Tatum's passing, like, too, and I probably borderline insane level or like <laughs> hey he just becomes like he's scoring 33 super efficiently um he didn't do that in the second half of the season but i mean do you think he was close to superstar level after sort of that trade deadline when he started just ripping off 50 point games or do you think he still wasn't quite there in the second half of the season no i think we were seeing uh, a version of Jason Tatum that's going to become the normality. I don't think at the moment those games are becoming more frequent and they're not so much the rule at the moment. It's still an exception based on this season. But I think that those are flashes of what prime Tatum is going to be at the floor of his prime, if we know it. Uh, I think that when I'm talking about his passing, one play that sticks out to me is that mad. You remember when the ball was going out of bounds? I can't remember it was against and he had that wraparound spin pass uh, the behind the back. Yeah. Yeah, to Time Lord. Like to me, that just shows such a a high ceiling in terms of play recognition, floor, and understanding where everyone is on the floor, and quick decision making. That I, I I just cannot imagine a world where his playmaking doesn't take these steps over time. Um, I do think that we saw close to superstar Tatum after the trade deadline, and it's very funny because that's two years in a row where his game has just gone into another stratosphere after the All Star game. I think that gives him more confidence he plays with a bit more of a swagger after he's been named an all-star and i think he feeds on that as well um obviously just from watching the way he plays the way he conducts his interviews um so i definitely think that we are starting to see the very beginning of tatum reaching that superstar mountaintop yeah there's almost parallels between how he trends upwards within a single game and also how he trends upwards within the, the course of a regular yeah. season. It sort of it takes him a while to ramp up throughout the season. Also doesn't typically score particularly well within the first quarter of a game. Um, so maybe something for him to address there that he needs to sort of score more efficiently and effectively throughout the course of a game, including the beginning of the game. We don't have Avery Bradley anymore to go out and score the first five buckets for the Celtics. We need someone to score those buckets for us. Um, and with a lack of shooting sort of, you know, through and through for this this year's team, at least on paper, um, maybe Tatum, that's another area of his game that he needs to step up on. Um, on his playmaking as well, just randomly the other day, I was watching the Celtics versus Warriors game. I think it was April 17, where like Steph went off for you know 40, whatever it was. Tatum went off for 44. It was an incredible game. And there were multiple plays where Tatum got into the paint and made the perfect kickout pass to uh, none other than Shami Ojolet, who bricked all of those opportunities, those wide open threes. Shammy's now gone. You could argue that we're deeper, although not necessarily um, in terms of shooting. Um, but I, I hope that Tatum continues to to trust the kickout pass, and I hope that now that the roster we have around him can at least knock those down uh, with more consistency. And we're going to get to some Neesmith stuff on that 
in that vein a little bit later. Um, transitioning a little bit now, though, uh, is there any other player in the league, any player at all, any active player in the league, Adam, that you could replace Jason Tatum with that would make this current team as constructed a contender? Oh, uh, th- as constructed. Yes, as like if you replace Tatum with KD, like would this be a championship Yeah, team? I mean, your top five guys are always going to mean that your team's a contender, right? So mm-hmm. you can say I, um, KD, maybe Davis could do so. Um, you could look, maybe LeBron, even at his age, if you're classing him as a top five guy still, then he could. Harden probably could. We've seen Kyrie not be able to do that, so we can completely write him off from the get-go. Um, Giannis is another guy that probably could because of the way Brown is. Um, there's a few. I'd probably say there's probably seven guys that could arguably step in and take this team to a contender status. But if we're being mm-hmm. real, there's too many teams that are too deep. And remember, if you don't have Tatum, the team that you're naming this player from most likely has Tatum on their team. And sure. when, you, when you think about it like that, I, I just can't see it happening. What team, if you put Giannis on this team and give him a walkie Tatum, are Boston good enough to get past Brooklyn or get past the LA Golden Girls, which they've got over there? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm, genu- I'm not sure. So um, I genu- as constructed in the league as constructed, I don't think one player makes a huge amount of difference this year. Yeah, no, I agree. And so, yeah, so Tatum is our ceiling. And no matter who we replace that ceiling with, it doesn't, doesn't get us over the line. So Tatum is the ceiling. Smart, you can say time lord at the floor. I guess that makes Jalen Brown the walls or the furniture or something in between the floor and the ceiling. Um, is it possible that a Jalen Brown leap is actually more important than a Tatum leap in that vein? I also think it's more likely, if I'm being quite honest. I think mm-hmm. that um, if you look at Jalen Brown, he's got a very reliable body of work that shows year-on-year progress in large, large strides. So, you know, whether it be coming into the league one-handed and having a really weak hand-left dribble, to now he can finish ambidextrously around the rim, to, um, you know, he couldn't shoot pull-up freeze. Now he can shoot pull-up freeze either off the catch, off the dribble. It doesn't matter to him. His development has been very linear, which is rare in the NBA. In my opinion, I think development is never linear. Um, I think Jalen Brown's development is actually more likely just based on the track record of his progress from when he came into the league as a raw athletic slasher man to a where he is now an all-star two-way wing. That is a huge level of progress. And to me, that just says ex- expecting him not to make that step again this year is going against everything he's shown throughout his career so far. So I actually think it's highly likely Jalen takes another step this year. That's, that's interesting because uh, what I actually wanted to ask you about Jalen is, are you concerned he might actually take a step back I mean, he shot 50% from mid-range on some absolutely insanely difficult attempts, and his shot mix changed in the second half of the season. He traded those mid-ranges in for threes, which is something I supported. He actually became less efficient. His true shooting went from 59 to 58. So, I mean, if he's not shooting 50% on mid-range jumpers, uh, and he's just kind of as good as he was last year, I mean, is there any concern? Or are you just so confident uh, in his, you know, he'll work on his game, it won't matter, he'll at least be as good as last year, probably better? So I would, personally, for me, I would be happy with a 3 or 4% dip in true shooting, or in shooting efficiency overall, if it means he rediscovers his on-ball defense from two years ago. I would much rather have a guy that can lock you up 
and then shoot 47% across the field rather than a guy that can shoot 50-51-52 but he struggles to guard on the defensive end because those extra those extra percentages in points scored are just being allowed on the defensive end so if Jalen Brown could rediscover that on-ball defense um, I'm happy with him taking mid-ranges I, there was a really good article on the ringer um, probably about a month ago now talking about how guys like um, Chris Middleton and DeMar DeRozan um, they they book the trend of this analytics movement where mid-range is the devil and you should avoid it at all costs. Because the, the fact of the matter is defenses are set up now to guard the perimeter and the rim. There is so many available looks in the mid-range that having someone there that is confident and consistent benefits you, especially in the playoffs when it's a half-court-based offense and that mid-range is just begging for people to get in there and take their, take their shots from there. So if, if Brown wants to swap the uh, two three-pointers a game for two more mid-range attempts a game, I actually think that brings value. And it also brings value to guys like Tatum and Neesmith because now defenses have to sink that little bit further off the perimeter or push up a little bit away from the rim. So either, either Tatum and Neesmith are going to feast or Rob Williams is going to feast down low because there, there has to be some form of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? compromise on that defense to deal with that mid-range threat from Brown. So I'd be, I'd happily see him step back into that mid-range. But for me, it's that defense that's most important. Mm, interesting. So much to look for in this upcoming season with Tatum and Brown. And Adam, you've given us plenty of homework. Like I said, already going to listen back to this first segment and, and jot down all of those, <laughs> those websites and resources you recommended uh, so we can get prepared for this upcoming season. We're going to transition again slightly now. There's been a pretty relevant post, actually, just a total coincidence on Celtics Reddit by a user, was David, titled, For Non-US Residents, Why the Celtics? Uh, Spoons, not intending to ex- exclude you here, mate. Um, Adam, <laughs> like, to, to what extent are you a fan of the team? And of all teams, why the Celtics? Uh, yeah, so I do cover other teams um, from time to time, you know, but I've grew up a Celtics fan from probably about six, seven years old, maybe a little bit older than that. Um, growing up here in the UK, when I was young, there was no basketball. It's sucker, 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 sucker. And I've always been the guy that's, you know, that annoying one that's like, hey, if everyone else is doing this, I don't want to do it. So um, mm-hmm. sucker for me was always like that. It was just it's ubiquitous here. It gets pushed down your throat consistently. Uh, and I remember we had uh, this is how long ago it was we had a new terrestrial channel so a channel that wasn't on cable it was free to own um launch and it was channel five very aptly named um and they started playing one basketball game a week and they used to iterate between the chicago Bulls, the la lakers the boston celtics and the 76ers and it was whoever had the best game that week like the most enjoyable they would throw on tv on a friday afternoon and um i started watching them with my mom um and, you know, you had Jordan and the Bulls with Pippin and Rodman, and they were just dominating everybody. And that was great to watch. But then you had the, this, this Celtics team that was getting their butts spanked constantly. They just weren't that <laughs> good of a team. And uh, yep. again, it was that thing where I'd go to school and people would be like, the Chicago Bulls are amazing. Oh, the LA Lakers are great. Oh, the 76ers are so good. And I'm like, that's it. Then I need the Celtics. I don't want it. And I don't want to be like everybody else. And uh, yep. from then, I got really into the Celtics. Um, obviously, growing up, there was no internet, so I never got to understand box scores. I didn't really understand much more than a double dribble, um, rebound, scoring assists. It was very much just a base level casual fandom for a very, very long time. 
Um, sure. Going to a high school, I'm playing basketball daily. I'm playing like you know, I'm playing for the city. I'm playing for the country youth team. Um, league pass comes around, so I start watching more and more. But it's still a very casual level. I understand it a bit more now because I'm playing. Um, but yeah, I, I got into it around about 1994-95, and then I followed the Celtics as like my team in a way. Um, since then, all the way through till we're in 2021, so it's been a long time. Wow, yeah, and I, so, I can uh, imagine. Sorry, Spoons, after you. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, please. I can imagine the temptation there in 1994. I mean, I guess Jordan was technically retired at the time, but um, I know a lot of my friends at that period of time all became Chicago Bulls fans. For me, my dad played touch footy, you know, rugby when I was growing up, and Larry Bird just like looked like all of his Aussie mates that we'd see down at the footy club after the game, and yeah. that was enough to make me gravitate towards the team. It's just interesting the sort of things that can, can sort of make you choose a team from so far away, and particularly when there's far more appetizing and, I guess, dominant teams around at the time. Um, Spoons, did you have something you wanted to add there? Oh, no, I was just going to say uh, I liken it to I'm an Everton fan for the sole reason is Tim Howard was their goalie and he's American. So it is, it's interesting <laughs> how you can kind of latch on to a team and then it just becomes, you know, lifelong fandom. Yeah, it's crazy. And you resonate with them as well. Like, I find that every team plays a very specific way. And like I've always been about hard work and grinding. So the Celtics hard work defense kind of really resonated with me as I got older. Um, and then it was just, again, like, um, like everyone said, like everyone's a Chicago Bulls fan. Everyone's a, a Manchester United fan or a Manchester mm. City fan. Like, the, to me, that, like, if that's your reason for being a fan, just for success, then that's completely fine because you're, as an individual, you're entitled to just enjoy a sport. But I, I, I wanted an emotional investment in a team, and I wanted a team that I could emotionally ride the success with the failure. And I think that as a if you want to experience the full breadth of fandom, then you need to be on it. You need to be following a team that's going to take you across that roller coaster year on year because you need the lows as much as you need the highs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about your? I'm interested to hear more about your career. So, like, you're obviously based in the UK, and yet you're this lead writer and podcast host for perhaps the biggest independent Celtics blog out there. I mean, they're literally called Celtics Blog. <laughs> um, how, like, how did the, how did you go from a Celtics fan in the UK to it being in such a prominent position in, in Celtics journalism like you're in now? Um, prominent, I wouldn't call it a prominent position, but I appreciate it very much. Um, <laughs> luck, if I'm being quite honest, I think a lot of it is a large stroke of luck. Um, so obviously, it's, I, I, basketball in Australia seems to be a lot more prele- um, relevant than it is in England. Um, I, I come across more Australian fans than I do English. Um, I had no one to talk about basketball with at all. Um, my daughter, I'd, my daughter had been born, so I weren't really socialising as much because obviously family life becomes a, a thing. And um, I just opened a Twitter account and started tweeting about the Celtics. Started writing blog posts that nobody read, um, recording podcasts that nobody listened to. Um, I'm you familiar know, with for, that for, part. A long, <laughs> for a long time, I was getting like ten downloads on a podcast and six reads of an article, but I never did it for like making money or being a journalist or whatever was never why I did it. It was just because, Hey, I want to talk about basketball. And if someone reads this, even one person and I get a conversation out of that, then that's fulfilling my need to talk about the Celtics. Um, and then over time, you know, uh, people started reading the stuff. My downloads were started climbing, just consistency. 
Um, I started writing for some other outlets. I remember I was at Hoops Habit with Fansided for a while back back in the day. And um, I just emailed Celtics Blog one day, like, hey, this is my, basically, this is everything I've ever wrote on a link. This is everything I've ever said on a podcast on a link. I would love to write for you in any capacity should you have an opportunity available. Um, Jeff, who runs Celtics Blog, got back to me. Obviously, at the time, there wasn't any positions. And I just continued to work. And then every so many months, I would just check in. Hey, this is what I've done since the last time we spoke. If there's any other position available, I'd be super grateful. Eventually, probably a year down the line, um, they reached out to me like, hey, there's a, a position like, it's, um, to come on as just a contributor and you know, write whenever you want. If you don't want to write, that's fine too. Um, so I did that. As, at the same time, my Twitter following is growing and blah, blah, blah. And then from there, you know, I just worked my way up into a, 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 like a, a consistent contributor to a lead writer, took over their podcast, um, landed some awesome guests over the time. Um, and then obviously with that consistency, your social media platforms begin to grow and then other websites begin to take notice and opportunities begin to open doors for you. Um, definitely, definitely difficult being from the UK. Uh, but I, I genuinely believe that the NBA is an international brand. I genuinely believe that social media has got rid of distances and borders in between countries. And I, I do have the occasional people that are like, you're English, you don't know what you're talking about, so we're not going to read or listen. And that's fine. That's completely fine. Um, mm-hmm. But then I have other people that appreciate the fact that I have that different opinion because I'm removed from the city and I'm removed from the culture of Boston sports in terms of geographic location and upbringing. So uh, it, it's been tough, but um, it's one. It's probably been about four and a half, five years now, maybe a little bit less. But uh, it's been a heck of a ride. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. It's been really fun to follow you. I think, like me being in Australia and seeing you get to where you started and where you are now in the UK, like there's a there's a unique appreciation from from other overseas fans. I think to see yeah, the rise sure. of someone in your position. So really respect the hustle. Um, like you mentioned you've had some good guests on your podcast, and I've listened to all of them. Like you had Gordon Hayward on, you had Kendrick Perkins on. You're obviously a fan of the team. Like thinking about how I would feel in that situation, I would be petrified talking to Kendrick Perkins, oh, yeah, t- sure. talking to Gordon Hayward. <laughs> You're obviously more professional than I am, but like, can you talk me through like how you like like Let's be honest. Like, how do you prepare yourself for for that moment, and how do you maintain your composure through those interviews? Because I'd be absolutely shitting myself if I'm being honest. Yeah, 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 for real, dude. Like, um, have you ever seen the film Cool Runnings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know that you know that scene where he's in the mirror and he's like, um, I see pride, I see power, I see a bad, mo- <laughs> I see a bad mofo that won't take no crap. Like, I have to give myself one of those talks because you're t- like, um, you know, Kendrick Perkins was probably the most nervous I've been for any interview. Um, sure. And. Like it's been set up. It's 10 minutes until go time. And I'm looking in the mirror, like you need to stop sweating. You need to, you know, stop stammering <laughs> because this is like perk will call you out. If you say something wrong. And the last thing I want is to not yeah. have the opportunity to interview him again in the future. Um, so, and then once the camera's on and you're talking and stuff, I try to treat every interview. Like I'm just asking you questions at a bar. And, you know, mm-hmm. I keep it professional. I try not to let it become like, oh, my God, Kendrick Perkins, can you tell me this? I try and keep it to a, a certain <laughs> level of professionalism. But at the same time, I want to develop a relationship with you that I can hit you up in the future and be like, hey, Kendrick, do you want to jump on today? And, you know, you feel like, hey, Adam treats you well. He, he acts professionally. Hopefully they'll say yes in the future too. But, man, I'm, I'm scared. Usually my palms are just dripping. 
I'm just, I'm just trying to, um, you know, but you only see my face on the camera, so you don't see the rest of me trembling. That's right. That's yeah. great. Adam, one thing I'll say, uh, being that far away from Boston sports culture is a good thing. Trust me. It's, it's terrible <laughs> up here. You should hear that. You should hear the sports radio. I mean, it would drive you insane. Um, do you actually think the, uh, covid and the lack of access for all kind of the domestic folks covering the team has kind of been a benefit for you though because you've sort of leveled the playing field for someone who's you know thousands of miles away covering the team oh for sure i mean for me personally i never actually got much access to the celtics post games um yeah interviews and stuff but that was fine because they're usually at 3 a.m my time um <laughs> But what I did get was I got access to pregame quite consistently. Um, I was getting access to, you know, anytime there was a big like national um, press conference, I'd have media access there. Shockingly, other teams show me quite a bit of love, like the Dallas, Dallas Mavericks show me a, a lot of love, and I don't know why. Um, so, you know, I was sitting in on Luka Doncic interviews postgame and being there for stuff. Like It really did level the playing field because now everybody with an internet connection that are known to the team and have those credentials to get into those press conferences. Well, it's just a click of a button. I no longer have to worry about six, 700 pound flights across the ocean to try and get an interview with somebody. Um, but the Celtics are a very, very tough team to get in with their media circle in terms of like their PR team. So I wish I had more access than what I did, but I'm grateful for the increased access to what I actually had in the first place. No, interesting. I mean, we've certainly found, like, certainly not to that degree. We're not sitting in on any Luka Doncic interviews, but the the caliber of podcast guests that we were able to get once the pandemic started just skyrocketed, and we're able to get you know yeah. folks like Abby Chin and just people closer to the team who would never bat an eyelid at you know, let's be honest, like a like a fan based amateur podcast. Suddenly they're um, they're available and they're willing to come on and talk yeah. to people like this. Oh, like Abby's so that's, awesome. that's been exciting. She's great. Abby's yeah, super a, nice. Yeah, she's an awesome person. I really like Abby. Yeah, very, very welcoming and accommodating, uh, particularly yeah. when it comes to, to small fries like this. Um, before we wrap up, though, Adam, we have scoured Celtics Reddit for some hot takes covering the full <laughs> spectrum, of course. We're going to rattle some of these off, and Adam, we'd love to hear your reaction to some of them. Of We're going to start with a take from a user called Sea of Wine. Uh, which in lockdown has, has certainly been my habitat, a sea of wine. Um, <laughs> they go on to say, I want Grant Williams, not a high ceiling, but a competitive player who can guard from three to five in crucial moments for Emi Odoka's team is a key player to hold, so to keep on the team. Um, Adam, do you agree with this take? Is is Grant Williams a key player for Udoka's squad this year, or is he more expendable? I think the bit where it says can guard three through five is something I'd um, vehemently disagree with. Um, <laughs> I think we've seen him get exposed against quicker fours. Um, definitely, to me, I think Grant Williams is a guy you put up against big, long, like lumbering big men. DeAndre Drummond, we saw him have a really good game against Jokic. I think Grant Williams is a high-level glue guy. And for that reason alone, you know, as a 14th, 15th man earning minimal salary uh, i think he actually is important to locker room success but as a piece on the floor we're, we're gonna have to wait and see but guarding three through five to me is uh that's a bit of a stretch understood 
moving on, this one actually comes from my very own Wayne Spoonie, who's on the pub with us right now, and it's uh, <laughs> titled The Start Aaron Neesmith Manifesto. And this is an issue that's very close to all of our hearts, but particularly Spoonie, who poured his life um, into this, this manifesto <laughs> for a week or so. Spoons, I'm going to throw to you uh, for this one because I, I'm going to botch it if I try and summarize it myself. So for, for Adam's sake, can you try and summarize the, the central thesis here? Yeah, sure. And I threatened Ben with violence if he didn't include this in the Reddit rundown. So that's why we're <laughs> yeah, that's why we're talking about it. Uh, so basically, I know you, Adam. I saw a piece you wrote where you went back and forth with another Celtics blogger or Celtics blog writer, and your position was actually to start Aaron Neesmith. Uh, so I think hopefully you're going to agree with me here. But really, my point is that in his you know, last year, his skill set was completely in his infancy, right? I mean, he yeah. shot decently well, but it's not like he was short shooting 43%. Uh, but he kind of got defended like he was. You know, defenders really stuck to him tightly, and it opened the floor for uh, Tatum and Brown. I mean, that three-man group had like a 14 net rating, but they only played 60 minutes together. Uh, and really, you know, I think, his defense needs to take a step up, but he's got the potential. He's got a lot higher defensive potential than, say, Pritchard, uh, who's a great fit on offense as well. And so, essentially, if you expect him to get just a little bit better on both ends, I think he's a natural starter, especially considering I just don't think Schroeder and Richardson are very good fits on the offensive end uh, next to Tatum and Brown. So... I'm just wondering your thoughts on the Start Neesmith campaign, movement, revolution, whatever you want to call it. It's a scene, man. I would like to be your assistant general in this movement. Um, Viva <laughs> Absolutely. <Revolution>. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've done two pieces on this last week, um, earlier, uh, the earlier part of last week. The one that you've referenced there where I went back and forth and another one on why Josh Richardson makes sense off the bench. And the biggest reason for me is Aaron Neesmith has shooting gravity. And when we spoke about forcing defenses to make into compromising positions, uh, being able to utilize somebody with that free, that deep range scoring gravity that can defend, you know, I agree. He definitely needs to improve at the moment. It's very much, I'm athletic. I'm fast. I will hurt you if I need to, while I try and block the ball. Um, that definitely needs to improve. But I do think that his um, his skill set sits better with the starters than it does with the bench. And I also think that by moving Neesmith into that starting five, you're and I'm not. I know this kind of sounds like I'm expecting hockey rotations, but I'm not. But what uh, in my head, what it makes sense is you're distributing the veteran presence evenly between starting five and bench unit. Now you have a bench unit that comprises of Schroeder comprises of Richardson um, and then whoever else you want to throw into that mix of Pritchard or Romeo or whoever but you actually have two solid multi-year vets coming off the bench for you whereas if Neesmith was coming off the bench well now you're relying on one legitimate veteran bench presence and then you need to start staggering Tatum or Brown so I think that not only does it add um, continuity towards the lineup um I just genuinely want to be part of this revolution. I'm completely with you. Uh, I could talk about this <laughs> for right, hours. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a perfect fit from what you're saying. It's obviously got some much needed shooting there and kick out opportunities for Tatum and Brown. But we're also spreading the love as far as a veteran presence throughout all possible rotations uh, throughout the season. 
So, uh, very glad to hear you're on board there, Adam. It's uh, obviously music to our ears, and particularly Spoonie, who um, <laughs> I'm sure, he, I'm sure he, you can't see him on the camera right now, but I'm sure he's weeping with with, uh, with joy. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's why I turned it on. Now, <laughs> turn it off so you can see me cry. <laughs> it's finally been validated. Uh, now it's maybe anticlimactic to wrap it up with this question, but this is a question uh, or a statement, I suppose, from user Evan Time. They go on to say, if Jabari Parker can play good enough defense to earn minutes on this squad, then he absolutely deserves a spot. The problem is, his defense has been bad his entire career. So, Adam, what do you think? Is there much much of a future on the Celtics for Jabari Parker in the in the near future? I think the four is the weakest position on the roster, to be quite honest. Um, I think because of that, Jabari Parker should keep his spot. Um, he's one of the only bench guys really outside, like only big men on the bench that can really get in there and get their own buckets. Like Rob Williams can score with the best of them, but most of his um, points come off assists. Jabari Parker can, he's got a bit of a fadeaway game. He's got a low post game. Defense is going to be the big swing for him. Can he step in and just play, be a defensive role piece? We're not asking him to be a stopper. We're not asking him to be a linchpin of a defense. Just don't be, don't be bad. It's, it's literally that simple. Just be a net, don't be bad and you're going to have a roster spot this year. If you are bad, then we're going to see Grant Williams step into that role and I just don't think he's suited to um to playing the four. So I'd agree there that Jabari Parker should get the season this year. Yeah, it's funny that like a failure on Jabari Parker's front is like the threat of Grant Williams <laughs> stepping up to play that role. Like there should be an added incentive for Jabari Parker to do well. I just hope I haven't seen any photos of Jabari Parker recently, but the next photo I see I just want to see him like jacked, like if nothing else, to spend yeah. the off season like getting super buff and like getting in game shape because he kind of looked like like a two K like my career player with no VC when he came back and played for the Celtics. Like he just had no flair, no like I don't know, no no muscularity to him. It was kind of he was a very vanilla looking player. So I hope to see some improvement <laughs> on that front. I, I want to <laughs> see him reenact that Tatum picture that just went viral. Yeah, <laughs> with him holding oh, no. jacked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I need myself an NBA trainer so I can start looking in shape, man. Because these guys do it so quickly as well, like a couple of years, and they're enormous. Absolutely, yeah. Just got to eat a shitload of tacos and lift a shitload of weights. That's that seems to be the the Tatum yeah. regime. So um, something well, we can all aim for. Forty certainly... million a year is going to help there too. It helps. Yeah. It I got helps. the taco yeah. part down. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's that private. Yeah. Honestly, I genuinely pull it down to the private chef. I think when you've got someone cooking your food and nutritionally managing everything that you consume. It's easy to build muscle because you don't have to worry about those things yourself. I'm yeah, not, I'm not if you can make a diet... Anybody. No, totally. If you can make a diet not soul-destroying, which I have not managed to do in my life so far, um, then, then, yeah, that, that chef is worth their weight in gold. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a, a theme for a future off-season podcast, seeing as we've got a few weeks until training <laughs> camp. <laughs> just um, find a private chef and just see how what they do. Yeah, man, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Any private chefs out there willing to work for free? I'd love to have you at my house, uh, <laughs> in my home. <laughs> all right, folks, that's all we've got time for. You can read Adam's work on CelticsBlog.com and, of course, the podcast of the same name. Adam, this was great, man. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure, man. I was um, really honoured that you reached out and asked me. I had a great time. Thank you very much, and thank you to everybody uh, listening. 
Yeah, likewise. Very happy to have you, and we'd love to have you back at some point in the future. Uh, folks, we'll be back very early next week. Spoons, love your work, mate. Until next time, go Celtics. Peace. Thanks.